said this quite often as we've made our way through this book, that I have not enjoyed James like I thought I would. I thought this is going to be a great sermon series for our church, Live the Word. It's going to be about a living faith. It's going to be very, very practical. And as I've studied every week, this has been the most complicated book of the Bible that I have ever studied, that I have ever dug into, just trying to figure out what James is saying from one week to the next, from one verse to the next, from one passage to the next. How does all of this fit together? What is he really trying to get at? And if I'm being honest, James is quite sporadic. He goes from one subject to the, to the next, kind of like a conversation with Clay, where you're talking about something, and he's like that hunting dog, and he sees something over in the bushes, and he's gone, and he's chasing that rabbit, and you're just sitting there waiting for him to come back and finish the conversation. Sometimes I feel like James would just walk off in the middle of a conversation and just tell you what he's thinking and turn around and leave. I was sharing these thoughts with someone this week and I was talking about, and he's just so intense and he's blunt and, you know, people talk about preaching with an edge. I mean, this is a man who I'm sure preached sermons with an edge and came across at times overbearing and the person said to me, yeah, I wouldn't know any pastors like that. It's just different when someone else is coming at you. And yet this book, as hard and difficult as it has been, has just pierced my heart over and over. I think first and foremost, it, it has cautioned me with the way that I use words, the way that I talk being careful with words, specifically as a teacher of the word. One of the things James says is not many of you should be teachers because you will endure a stricter judgment. You use a lot of words. So you have to be careful with your words. And yet, when we think about James, and I would hope that I get to sit down with him in heaven and just say, could you explain this to me one more time? Because I, I still not sure I really understand what you're getting at here. What we do know about James is he was a faithful brother to the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered to the point of death. But he wasn't always faithful. He grew up with Jesus, Jesus' kid brother, who rejected him his whole life. Until the resurrection. And after the resurrection, James believes in his brother, Jesus, as his Lord and Savior. And he begins to declare this message that Jesus is Lord from one who was wondering, from one who denied him, now is declaring Jesus is Lord to the point he was tossed from the temple because he would not deny Jesus as Lord. And yet falling from the temple, being cast out of the temple, he did not die. And when those who were trying to kill him realized he was still breathing, they went down and clubbed him to death. And this is one who died for the sake of 
the Lord Jesus Christ. He died a martyr. And so whatever he says to us, we must take with utmost seriousness. Because he means what he says, and he's a man who lived out what he said. And so in chapter 1, when he calls us to consider it all joy, brothers, when you endure various kinds of trouble, trial, suffering. We can't look at this man and go, well, you really just don't know what my life's like. You really don't know what hardship is like, James. Now, this is one who endured to the end for the name of Jesus Christ. And so when he calls us to Christ-like wisdom, we got to dig in and we got to figure out what that looks like. And we talked about in chapter 1, what does it mean to ask God for wisdom? It means when we suffer in this world, our first prayer request is, how can I suffer like Jesus? How can I have the wisdom of Jesus? Instead of removing suffering from my life, we ask, no, how can I find joy in my suffering by living like Jesus? Jesus who believed to the very end the Father was good and would even endure the cross for our sins in our place, suffering for the sake of others. How can I endure suffering like Jesus? And James has told us, he said, you receive with meekness the implanted word. And as the word works and grows in our heart, what we will see is love and mercy for others. We will begin to look around at others and love them the way that God loves us. We will look around at others and we will be merciful the way that God was merciful with us. And as our hearts are harnessed to the word of God, this implanted seed that begins to grow fruit in our life, one of the things we will see is the way that we talk will change. We will speak words of love and mercy toward one another. And then he ends the book today by saying, you will also use your words in this glorious, amazing act of prayer. Instead of using your words to harness others, James calls us at the end of his letter to pray. And we can also know that this was a man who knew what prayer was about. One of the nicknames that James has is Camel Knees. And it's because he spent so much time on his knees, folks said they surely have to be calloused because he is always praying. He is always pleading for the sake of the church. He is always crying out to God for the sake of others. And that's exactly how he ends this letter. That's what he calls us to do is pray. Notice verse 13. First of all, we see the call to pray at all times. Notice verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. This word suffering, it is just a generic term. It refers to any kind of difficulty, any kind of burden in your life. But we do know from James that he's writing to a group of Christians who are suffering for the sake of the gospel. 
They're losing friends. They're losing family. They're losing jobs because they are Christians. And James says, if you're suffering in that way, what should you do? You should pray. And he's told us in chapter 1, we cry out to God for this Christ-like wisdom. But then he says here, is anyone cheerful? The, the word just means happy, glad. It's a very generic term. And he says, sing praise. Now, the word for sing here comes from the same word that we get, psalm, which the book of psalm is a book of songs. And, and what he is saying here is if your heart is full of joy, you, you, are, in, you are experiencing goodness and you are content right now, what you should do in those moments is sing. You should worship God if you are cheerful. Sing praise. It is the word that we get. It just means, it actually means to play the harp. And what he is saying here is when you experience goodness in your life, it should overflow in worship. And so James begins this section of scripture by calling us to have a God-centered view of all of life through prayer and praise. We, we harness every area of our life to God. We surrender it all to God through prayer and praise. Prayer declares in our lives that I am not in control. And the degree that you think you're in control is the degree you're not praying. And the degree that you understand I am weak and I can't fix things and I can't control things, you will be praying. And that's why if you're suffering, that's what you need to do. Because what God is teaching you in your suffering is you're not God. You're not Jesus. You're not the Holy Spirit. You don't control things. You can't fix everything. And the only thing you can do is pray. And suffering, the pressure of suffering will destroy us the longer we try to fix it. The longer we try to make those burdens right in and of ourselves. It will drive us to despair until we are driven to prayer. And I didn't mean to make that rhyme. That's not the kind of thing I do, but it rhymes. But if you're suffering here today, how are you suffering here today? Everyone in this room is touched by suffering in some way. Are you praying about it? That's God's design in this moment as you suffer that you would look to him. That you'd say, I'm not sovereign, I'm not in control, I'm not God. And there is freedom in that when you pray. And then he calls us to praise here. Maybe you're here today and you are enduring just a season of God's goodness. You should be thankful for that. As you look around at your life and you see God's blessings... You see, maybe there are prayers that, that you have prayed for years, and now God is answering those prayers. Maybe there's a relationship in your life where there was conflict, where there was division, and that relationship has been repaired and restored, and you are experiencing God's goodness. You should praise God for that. Why? Because you only deserve hell from God because of your sin. And he is being kind to you in this moment. Whatever that goodness is, isn't happening in your life by chance. You're not making all of that work. No, God is being kind to you. 
And so stop and thank him. What is it in your life right in this moment that you just need to stop and go, thank you, God. I was, I was numb to that. I, I was oblivious that you did that. And I was living as if you, you don't even exist and this thing just happened by chance. Stop in this moment and thank God. What he is doing at the outset of this section is he's reminding us we must have a God-centered view of everything, joy and pain. So we must pray and we must praise. But then we get to the next section, and it is extremely difficult to understand. And so as we make our way through this section, you have every right to disagree with me. You have every right to go, I just don't believe that's what he's saying here. But if you do, please do so with a Bible in hand and study and figure it out on your own. That's perfectly fine because this is really hard to understand and most people get to the end of it and go, that's my best shot. So I'm going to give you my best shot today. The next question he asks here, he calls us to pray at all times and here he is going to call to pray at to call us to pray for repentance. And he asked the question, is anyone sick? So is anyone suffering? Is anyone happy? And then is anyone sick? Now the word sick here, it is the word which just simply means weakness. And it could refer to physical weakness. It could refer to literal sickness and illness in someone's life. Or it could even refer to spiritual weakness. And that, that's possible in light of this book where he's writing to Christians who are suffering and maybe they are weak spiritually and they need to endure. But the concepts throughout this whole section of physical healing and spiritual restoration, as we're going to move through it, they're used interchangeably. In one moment, he's talking about someone being healed of physical sickness, and then he's talking about someone being restored in forgiveness spiritually and being healed of, of spiritual illness. And all of it happens in the context, and we're going to get to this in verses 19 and 20, of a wanderer, someone who is wandering from the faith, which we would say they are spiritually sick. And so... As we move through, keep those ideas in mind and understanding that sick can mean all of those things. But I believe what he is referring to here is sickness due to unrepentant sin in the context of the church. And I want to be very careful when I say that because rarely, it is my assumption that rarely is illness attributed to sin. Rarely is sickness because you have sinned in your life. That is most often when we are sick, it is just the result of living in a fallen world, a cursed world with uh, cursed with sin and death and we face the repercussions of that. There so many times when sickness comes in our life, we are out of control. It is out of our control and it has nothing to do with personal Sin, And so I don't want you to think today when you leave here that with every little cold and every little sniffle that God is judging you in some way. And I certainly don't want anyone here who is suffering 
from some dreadful disease to think it's because of sin in your life. There was a blind man, and the disciples and the Pharisees walked up to Jesus, and they said, is he blind because his parents sinned, or did he sin? And Jesus said, neither. He is blind so that you might see the power of God, and he healed him. And so sometimes it's just in the purposes of God that we endure suffering and illness. Also, Job's friends came to him, and they said, you are suffering. It must be because you have sinned. And we say, no, that's not what was going on there. But I believe here in the book of James, in context, this sickness is due to unrepentant sin in the church. Now, why do I believe that? Well, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, and there was all kinds of division in the church. They were, they were saying things like, I like this leader better than that leader, and they were dividing up, and there were factions in the church, and then there was disorder in the use of gifts. People were using their gifts for themselves, and they were alienating others, and there was this huge power struggle in the context of the church of Corinth. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, when you come to the table, you're coming in an unworthy manner. You haven't repented of your sin. And what were those sins? Causing division in the church. And Paul says these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, that's why some of you are ill, sick. And that's why some of you sleep. You have died. Because you are causing division in the church. Now let's think about the book of James. What has James been the most hardcore about? Where we say, what in the world how can you use such language? It is the use of our tongue. It is when we are slandering others. It is when we are unmerciful with our tongue. It is when we show partiality to others. And he has come after us that you can't do that and believe the gospel. And I think what James is referring to here with this illness in context, and we're going to move through context and you see how this works, is someone in the church unrepentant of sin, the sin of slander, the sin of division, the sin of causing disunity in the church. And so what does he call us to do here? And again, you can disagree with me. And I think the point still stands. He says, is anyone among you sick? Is anyone among you weak? And then he says, let him call the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of Jesus. Now, first of all, the prayer of a pastor, which is he's referring to here, an overseer, a shepherd, there's no special prayer that, that the pastor is going to pray that's going to heal someone. And then he refers to this, this idea of anointing him with oil. And this, this practice was, it was symbolic of setting someone apart to God. Someone uh, who, who uh, is set apart to serve God only. And so here we see this person who has sinned in this way and now they are sick. They call their pastors, the elders, to visit them. Why would they show up? 
Because in Matthew chapter 18, what does Jesus tell us to do in the context of church discipline? You confront someone of sin. If they do not repent, you go and you get two or three more people. And if they do not repent, you go and get the elders, the pastors. And they are confronted in this way. And then you take it to the church. I believe this is what James is teaching here. The elders, the pastors show up and they are leading in repentance. And yet this person is so sick, this person is so weak, they cannot make it. So the pastors come to them and they pray this prayer over them. And this is a scene of repentance and restoration. And so what he is calling this person to is to repent and call your pastors there and repent. And notice verse 15, he says, and the prayer of faith will save this one. The prayer of the leaders on behalf of the church, praying for this one to be restored to the church, he says, will save him. Now, one of the things we notice throughout, and just stick with me, we're going to get to a point here, is this word save is used interchangeably. It refers to physical healing. It also refers to spiritual restoration. And he says, the pastors come and this person repents of their sin and they are restored and they will be saved, the one who is sick. And he says, the Lord will raise him up. And we know that so often we have friends and relatives and people who are sick in our life and we pray and you pray with great faith. And sometimes God doesn't answer that prayer. That's why I think this situation is different. I think this person is repenting of unrepentant sin, and God is restoring them to health. God will raise them up, and that's why. Notice verse 15. You check out now, you're going to say, oh, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Let's just keep going. And if he has committed sin, he will be unforgiven, or he will be forgiven. Let's get that right. That's the issue right there. If this person has committed sin, he will be forgiven. Sin against the church, causing disunity, causing division in the church, he will be forgiven. And so there is hope there. There is grace there. This one who has probably been under the practice of church discipline here is restored with his pastors in his home, praying for him, set apart by this oil, back to the church, restored to the church. I believe that's what's going on here, but I do want to emphasize one thing before we move to the next verse. Notice it says the Lord will raise him up. The prayer of faith is a prayer of repentance. And when they repent, the Lord raises them up and restores them. Ultimately, the Lord does this restoration. Now, some of you are saying, I have never in my life, I'm not the only one that believes this, by the way, You say, that's really far-fetched. That sounds kind of crazy. And I'm not going to be dogmatic about it, by the way. But you may be saying here today, I have never seen that in my life. Let me ask you this question. When have you actually seen someone repent of slander? When have you actually seen someone repent of causing disunity in the church? That's rare, right? But maybe we've rarely seen it because of that. The point here is there should be gravity, back to James' point through the whole book, in the way that we speak about the church, in the way that we talk about brothers and sisters in Christ. God takes that seriously. 
There should be gravity when you talk about a brother and sister in Christ that is someone for whom Jesus shed his blood. That is someone for whom Jesus loves. And so you are to speak with kindness and you are to speak with mercy. And Jesus bought the church with his blood, with his life. And you are to care for her in the same way Jesus would care for her. Jesus is serious about the way that we interact with one another in the church. And so if you disagree with what's going on there, at least let's agree agree on that point. And this is why he says in verse 16, therefore confess your sins. If this wasn't about sin, why does he immediately go into make sure you're confessing your sin to one another? Make sure you are restoring yourself, reconciling to one another, and you are praying for one another. Why? That you would be healed. He goes back to this idea of being healed, restored even physically. He says, maintain unity in the church because there is a sickness, spiritual, physical, that can come within the church that, can, that, that comes from disunity. And we could even say, well, maybe it's just allegorical that he's talking about here. Maybe so. But the picture of someone who is dying, their body is racked with sickness. I think what James is saying is also a picture of disease in the church. And so he says, make sure that you are on top of your sin, specifically sin toward one another. And so he says, confess your sin to one another. What does the word confess mean? It means to agree with God about your sin. And what he is saying here is stop hiding your sin. Yes, I have sinned in this way. And you expose it. You see, the reality here today, we are all sinners. The only question here today is, will we be honest sinners or dishonest sinners? An honest sinner says, yes, I did that. I said that. And they expose their sin to one another, specifically sin against one another. You see, a lot of times we get to this section and people just pull it out of context and it's about accountability groups and it's about all of those things. What he is talking about here is sin in the church against one another. Make sure when you are convicted of sin against your brother and sister in Christ. Make sure when you are confronted of sin against your brother or sister in Christ that you are willing to confess it. Yes, I did that. You're not making excuses. Yes, I did that. You agree with the truth. Now, I want to be very clear here when he's talking about confession. He's talking about sin that is acted upon, not just thoughts or feelings. Sometimes there's a passive aggressive way of making people feel bad when you go, you know, I just have evil thoughts towards you. Let me tell you all the evil thoughts I have towards you. Or I just, I, I've, I've just felt really irritated by you and I think I really need to confess that to you. And it's just a passive aggressive way. What he's saying is sin that you have acted upon in the church. If you have spoken sinfully against another brother or sister in the church, you must confess that sin. If you have slandered another brother or sister in church, you must confess that sin. Who do you confess it to? The people you've talked to, as wide as the circle has gotten, 
you go to that person, you say, I shouldn't have said that about them. Will you forgive me? That was not about Jesus, and that did not display the mercy of God. And you confess it. To the extent you've caused division, you should confess that sin in the context of the church. I know this is weighty. I know this is heavy. Blame James. Don't blame me. But we confess our sin to one another. Over 50 times in the New Testament, that phrase, one another, is used. We need one another. We're in relationship with one another. Part of what that means is confessing sin. But then he says, pray for one another that you may be healed. And so the response to folks in the church that are confessing their sin isn't keeping points. Oh, you said that? And then you one-up them? And then you turn around and go, can you believe they said that? I can never trust them again. They said that about me. No, you stop. You short-circuit the division by going, I'm going to pray for them. I love you, and I'm going to pray for you. Let's take this to God together. And that's what unity in the body looks like. Willingness to confess your sin. Willingness to pray for one another. It short-circuits division in the church. And I think this is so important for us. And by the way, if you, you visited today, there's nothing going on here that I know about. There may be after this service, there may be a lot of confessing, I don't know. But this is a healthy body that loves one another. But I believe this word is so important to us because we live in a time where destroying other people with our words is just commonplace. I was watching political ads this week and I remembered a time when we would see those things come on our TV and we'd go, I can't wait till the election's over and I don't have to see any more of those, those ads where there's all this mud slinging and all this. I can't wait till that's over. I don't hear anybody say that much anymore because with social media, that kind of activity ain't ever over. And maybe the political ads are just a reflection of who we always have been anyway. Because we love power. And in our pride, if you look around at the groups and activities you're a part of, what is the natural tendency in our heart? It is to team up. It is to divide up. It is to build alliances, whether it's at the gym, whether it's in the teacher's lounge, whether it's in the break room, whether it's in the travel ball group text. We all want to divide up and we want to fight somebody else all of the time and we want to unleash slanderous outrage. And because we have phones in front of our face, we are a lot more courageous to do that nowadays than we've ever been in a culture or society. And so I think this word is so important to us. Whatever you think about the nuances of my interpretation of this passage, that is true. And if you are sinning against a brother or sister in Christ in this room, you must confess that sin. And when they confess that to you, you must pray for them. The humility to confess sin is not a, a person who will be seeking to fight with other people. If you are humble enough to say, I did this wrong, you're not going to be pursuing power. You're not going to be fighting. No, you're going to be in tune with the, the, the sin in your heart to say, how have I sinned? There's potential in my heart to sin. I shouldn't have said that. Why did I say that? I apologize for saying that. I'm sorry for saying that. The humility to do that is not a humility that's going to cause division. 
And humility that will pray for others is not seeking to destroy others. When you are irritated with someone's foolishness, pray for them. When you are scandalized by their sin, pray for them. Pray instead of slander. Pray instead of gossip. And certainly when they confess sin to you, don't keep points. Pray for them. And thank God for that moment, right? That someone would come to you and confess sin? And that you have an opportunity to restore a relationship with a brother in Christ, sister in Christ? Confess to one another. Pray for one another. And then he gets to, presses this, I think this is all in the same thing in context, when he says, pray for the wandering as the text continues, as we are praying for one another, he says, the prayer of a righteous person has great power. What is he talking about here? I still think he's focused on the wandering sick person who is being brought to repentance. And he says, the righteous person, their prayers for this person have great power. Now, some of us know the KJV. It it is one of those verses that is just stuck in my head. The fervent prayers of the righteous man are effectual and availeth much. It's just a bunch of words packed together that says prayer works, especially when you are surrendered to the will of God. That's when prayer works. You want to know what makes prayer go? When you engage in prayer, as he says righteous here, as someone surrendered to the right will of God, that's the kind of prayer that works. Prayer that doesn't always work is prayer that just kind of goes to God as some spiritual Santa Claus, give me what I want. But if you engage in prayer and you say, what is the will of God in this situation? God, show me what your will is in this situation. James says that kind of prayer works. And what is the righteous man, the righteous person's prayer in this context? That the body of Christ would be reconciled. And so what you have in the body is you have division, you have slander. And so the righteous man stands up in the middle of that congregation. And what does he do? He prays for unity. He prays for unity in the body. And James says that has great power in the church. And then he gives this example of Elijah. Notice, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. And he prayed fervently that it might not rain for three years and six months. And it did not rain on earth. And then he prayed again and heaven gave rain and the earth bore its fruits. He says Elijah was a prophet wasn't some sort of superhero saint. We look at the life of Elijah, and he had a lot of struggles, by the way. But through his prayer, he changed the forecast. Now, why does he point to Elijah here? And and back to the section earlier, if this was just about miraculous healing, Elijah once prayed for a widow's son to be raised from the dead. And perform that miracle. If this was just about physical healing, he'd have probably used that illustration. Why does he use the illustration of Elijah praying for rain? Because Israel was wandering from God. And Elijah prayed out that a drought would come that would lead the people of God to repentance. And there was a drought that came. And then he cried out to God that it would rain again. And the people repented and then enjoyed 
the blessing of God in the rain. And so what is he saying here? This is where you stand in the congregation as someone who wants God's will. You stand like Elijah and you are praying that God would purge his church of sin and he would restore his church to himself. And like Elijah's prayer, God uses our prayers in those moments. Prayers for unity, prayer for repentance, prayer for blessing, prayer for restoration. That's why he uses Elijah here. And then he concludes this book in verse 19. And I think this is the point he's getting to. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, again, this is context, someone who is in sin, someone who is wandering from the church, if this is the situation you find yourself in and someone brings him back, let him know whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. That last verse is what is at stake in this whole thing. Someone who would be so committed to their way, so committed to their sin, they would wander from the truth. And what brings them back? The prayer of a righteous person who wants the will of God in the church, who is praying for unity, who is praying that division would be squashed, who is praying for repentance. This is what he's talking about in bringing this person back to repentance. And one of the things James has taught us is the person who continues in sin, he has what kind of faith? It is dead faith. And yet, those who continue in the works of love and mercy and kindness, they have a living faith. And so the one who is wandering, if they continue to wander in their sin, and they continue to wander away from the church, they are proving who they are. And James says, rejoice when you are praying for that person and something miraculous happens like rain from heaven during a drought. When you are praying prayers for that person that they would turn from their sin and sometimes in our heart we say there is no way out for them. They are so blinded. They are so enslaved. They are beginning to hate and loathe Jesus James says, you know what works in that moment? Prayer. Are you praying for that person? The wanderer. We don't save them from their sin. He mentions soul from death and it will cover a multitude of sins, but we turn them back to their Savior, the only one who can. And if they continue to wander, it's proof they really don't believe in their Savior. And, and as we conclude this letter, I think James would say, this is why you need the church. You need pastors, you need friends who love you enough to pray that you would not wonder. And when you are wondering, they would plead with God on your behalf. Do you understand in the context of the church, and I think this is why James was was noted for his prayer because as he looks around and he sees Christians who are suffering and denying the faith, he gets on his knees and he pleads with God like Elijah, 
that they would be restored to God. You have a ministry greater than Elijah here today. As you are praying for folks to turn from their sin and turn to Christ. As an ambassador, ambassador who pleads for them, you, you have a greater ministry than the prophet Elijah. And I want to ask you this question as we conclude this book. When you know of someone who is wandering in the faith, what is your initial reaction? You, you see in this section, there is gravity to our sin. And what is your reaction when you hear of someone who is walking away from Jesus? Is it just, oh, that's between them and God? Is it just, you know, out of sight, out of mind? Some of us think, well, if I could just get to them and lecture them. They would come back to church and they would understand that that's foolish and they're destroying their life. If I, could, if I could just even debate them with, with apologetics, they would turn to Christ. What James says is when you see this going on, get on your knees and pray, brother, sister. Because they are walking from life to death. And they are walking from the only thing that would cover their sin, the blood of Christ. And they are proving that they have a dead faith. And the only thing that can change that is prayer a lot of times we think in those situations prayer is an option no uh, James is saying prayer is the only option are you desperate to pray I was talking to John Martin one time about something that was going on in my own life and John kind of irritates me like James a little bit too because he always says well you need to pray about it you need to pray about it. You need to pray about it. And I said to him, John, I am praying about it, but my prayers sound so ridiculous right now. All I am doing is just kind of crying out, God, please help me. And he stopped me and he said, those are the prayers God hears. You're right where God wants you to be. And maybe you're here today and there are situations in your life that are too much for you. You must be praying. And the situation that can overwhelm us at times is seeing brothers and sisters in Christ struggling. But you understand, back to the introduction, James was a wanderer. And the one who would say, I am prone to wonder, is the one who will pray the most for those who are wandering. Because you know Jesus pursues the wanderers. And so that's what we want to do today to conclude our time together is pray. This section from the pastor James comes across with a lot of gravity, the gravity of a shepherd who loves and cares for the sheep. But notice what's woven all the way through, pray. That's the response, pray. And so during this time, maybe you're suffering Pray. Maybe you're here today and you're enduring blessing. Pray. Maybe you need to confess sin, slander, grumbling, gossip. Pray. Maybe you're tempted to war back and forth with others. Pray. And maybe you know someone who is wandering. Well, let's pray for them together. Let's pray at this time and then I will conclude us as we begin to respond.